0: You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at Redeemer Bible Church.
1: This morning's text is from Mark 9, verses 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, "O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, This is the word of God.
0: Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, even though we Follow the text, because we believe in the inspired and inerrant word of God, and then all scripture, every verse, is for our edification as it points us to Christ. But we also see how you, working through human decision, sovereignly ordain certain texts for certain days for certain people. I am no prophet, but I trust you. And I trust that there are some, maybe one, maybe many, who are aching for a touch from you. They're saying, I believe. Help my unbelief. So with those bowels of compassion that Paul felt from you for your people, Would that be made manifest today? In Jesus' name, amen. The summer of 2017 was one of, if not the most difficult, seasons of my life. Pressure in ministry, parenting a house full of small children, Remodeling the home that we had purchased. Being away from immediate family and friends. Trying to connect to a community that we had just moved into. Trying to learn new names and nuances. My own sinful proclivities toward pride and exhaustion and my sinful habit of withdrawing into myself. All of this proved to be a perfect storm. I've always, as far back as I can remember, struggled with anxiety and depression. But this summer, 2017, the axle broke, and my little car went flying into the ditch. I wanted to share some entries I wrote in my diary Around that time but I couldn't find it and I cut my leg in the process trying to dig through my shed to find it but I buried it deep in a box out there somewhere because frankly I don't want to see it and I don't want to read it it's too painful and it's too scary suicide remained outside the realm of possibility. But as I looked up, it scared me because it moved two inches closer to the barrier. Never had that happen before. I (laughs) remember... I remember many of the words that I scribbled in my diary during that time. Words like, why? Words like, this hurts. I can't do this. Where are you? I don't know what to do. And just simply the word, please. So I'm wondering this morning if you can relate, and if your diary reads like mine. And yet, paradoxically, this was also one of the most fruitful seasons of my life. It was during this summer, this horrible, horrible summer, that I produced the most writing I've ever done. I produced the most poetry and songs and music. I wrote booklets. I wrote books. I was regularly in private prayer during this time, sometimes for literally hours at a time. I fasted routinely. I would wake up from sleep with particular people in my mind that I would go downstairs and pray for. My heart ached during this time for the lost in my city as I watched fentanyl grip the blue-collar Wisconsin town and choke it to death. I felt carried in the pulpit when I would preach because I was totally dependent on God's strength because mine was gone. I didn't know it at the time, but the Lord Jesus, the consummate teacher and instructor, had taken me to his school of prayer. Did you know there is such a thing? Did you know that admission to this school is simply humility? Humility, however, is a hard lesson. And yet the Savior intends to answer the prayer of his disciples when they asked him. What did they ask him? Teach us to walk on water? Teach us to multiply bread? No. What did they ask him? Teach us how to pray. Because they knew whenever he would go away and talk to the Father, everything came from that. The same one who sweat drops of blood while praying in the garden, he knows, he knows what it takes to bring his people to pray like this. This is a Puritan prayer. They walked in lockstep with the Savior in a way that I wish I understood. One old Puritan prayed this, comfort me with your fruit and your drink, my Lord, and the rest will not matter. Let your promise be my portion and your care for my soul. Then whatever is left from my body will be enough. Lord, let me sit down to eat with you, and I will never complain about the menu. If I have a portion from your table, however much it is, let me hear your voice saying, I am yours, and with me are all things, and I will be content with your allowance." In today's passage, the disciples are going to come down from their literal mountaintop moment. We looked at the transfiguration last week, they're coming down and they're going to meet with the other disciples that stayed down. They're going to come down from their mountaintop moment and they're going to enter directly into the valley of humiliation. But like us, they are going to learn valuable lessons in Christ's school of prayer. The first thing we see in our text here in Mark chapter 9 is the tough crowd. The tough crowd. Let's read verses 14 and 15. It says, When they came to the disciples, they're coming down now, meeting with their friends, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, All the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him, and they greeted him. It's interesting to note that the Jewish leaders and others are questioning the disciples' claim to have cast out demons. This is so critical to understand to this text. The whole text, uncomfortable as it may be, is centered around the need for an exorcism. Christ has conquered every vile spirit and broken the teeth of Satan. Amen. And things like this are a reality in a fallen world. So we're not going to sanitize it. This is an exorcism. Interestingly enough, you go back to Mark chapter 6. Go there with me. Because I think if we don't see this, keep it in context. Today's passage won't, won't hit like it's supposed to. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. You'll remember when we covered this portion. It says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And what did he do? He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Demonic activity factors heavily in Mark's gospel. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a home, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 12, so they went out. These same disciples in Mark 9, same dudes. So they went out, proclaimed that people should repent. Verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed. Back to Mark 9. Same guys. And if you were listening, as Brittany read, you realize what the problem is. Same guys, same situation. They've cast out many demons, and here comes a little boy with a demon, easy peasy, right? No. And that is what has incurred the mockery and the critique of the religious leaders who would love to find fault with anything related to Yeshua. This event that's happening in Mark 9 likely took place at Mount Hermon, which means that the Jewish leaders traveled a long way north just to audit Jesus' ministry and to look for failure on the part of his disciples. They were, they were frothing at the mouth, not like the demonized boy, but they were salivating and they found their opportunity because his disciples that were so triumphant, specifically in exorcisms in Mark 6, are now completely defeated and mocked. These young men are learning a hard lesson about the danger of self-reliance. And isn't it like the devil, Satan, which means accuser, to hit us with doubt when we are coming to grips with our own weakness? I and mean, you could just see them standing there trying to do what they've done many times before. And nothing's happening, it's not working. Exorcisms are messy, off-putting. They're supernatural. You come in contact with the other, and yet it is very real. So let's not sanitize the situation. They're trying to exercise this thing, and now all of a sudden it's not leaving. Was it mocking them through that little boy? I don't know. But you can almost hear the ancient serpent coiling around them and hissing something like this, ha, you were so committed and so zealous that you became reliant on yourself and look at you now. As we will see, this episode is brought about because of this little boy's affliction. But I have to wonder, is, is he doing to them, is he saying what he said about Job? Well, how, does, how does Satan operate? You get a little peek in Job. He says, stretch out your hand against him, touch him, break him, and he'll curse you to your face. He knows how weak we are. He knows human nature. He's watched us for a long time. And yet we know that this was all brought about by the sovereign hand of God. You think Jesus, the omnipotent co-eternal Son of God, was actually shocked to walk up on this situation? So I ask you, disciples, has the Lord brought you face to face with your weakness? Has the Lord brought you face to face with your need of Jesus? Has He awakened in you or maybe awakening in you? That we can have mountaintop moments, we can have seasons of religious fervor, and they are wonderful, but we cannot rest on yesterday's manna. We need manna today. We need Jesus today. You had a great prayer life five years ago. What about now? Maybe you cast out the proverbial demon many times, but you've become self-reliant. And Jesus, the Messiah, aims to get glory as the sovereign one in your life. And he aims to conform you into his image. And sometimes that requires a hard lesson. So here's the first lesson in Christ's school of prayer for self-reliant disciples. Hear me. Whatever means, whatever means, the Lord may use To awaken you to your weakness is an act of mercy, whether that be a demonic boy, the critique of leaders, mockery, feeling foolish, feeling completely stripped and exposed. He will take you there. He's Aslan the lion, right? Is he he good? Yes. Is he safe? No. No. Whatever means the Lord may use to awaken you to your weakness is an act of mercy. We see the tough crowd. The scene is set. The second thing we see is the tired father. The tired father. Look at verse 16. He asked them, so now Jesus is on the scene, what are you arguing about with them As, as if Jesus doesn't know? What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. How, how far did he travel? We don't know. He traveled by foot, camel, certainly wasn't an Uber. And he says, I'm talking to your disciples, but I came for you. I'll settle for them because I know they do things like this, but I came to you and I brought, I brought my boy. He said, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So since you weren't here, I asked your disciples to cast it out because I heard they do that kind of thing. And they were not able. What a whiplash from Mark 6. It says in Mark 6, they cast out many demons. What happened between Mark 6 and Mark Nine, I think we're going to find out at the end of the text, prayerlessness, self-reliance. The New Testament world demanded a much broader view of the supernatural than our modern naturalistic worldview. Beloved, this was not merely a case of epilepsy. Epilepsy. Mark could have explained that as he did elsewhere. Elsewhere in the Gospels, there are times where they'll say this man was deaf, full stop. They don't say anything about demonic intervention. Life in a fallen world, bodies fall apart. There's other places where he said the man was blind. There wasn't any demonic intervention. In this case, it specifically says it was a spirit, perhaps accentuating physiological symptoms, but there was unmistakably demonic agitation. This poor father knew. I mean, imagine this. It's one thing to know your child is suffering with a virus. Many of us, it's that time of year, right? It's hard to watch your child suffer. But at least if there's a virus or something, we we go get moxicillin or we go get a medicine. We kind of know what to do. We get some Tylenol, some children's ibuprofen, or if you see the big Tupperware bowls come out, look out. But we, we know we can do something, but Imagine his helplessness knowing that this is a demon. What do you do with that? It's it's other than. I don't know what to do for my boy, because this is something outside of my jurisdiction. I don't know what to do. No Tylenol is going to fix this. No medicine is going to fix this. I need Jesus. He's desperate. Mark's verbiage here, look at verse 17, 18. It says, he has a spirit that makes him mute. This father can't even talk to him. You know how, how much that would accentuate desperation? At least if your child's sick, you could say, tell me how you feel. Are you okay? Is your tummy hurt? What Can't talk. Spirit makes him mute, and it seizes him and throws him down. Do you you see that Mark's verbiage here literally means to throw forcefully in order to destroy or kill? This demon is harassing this boy and wants to crush him. They do not love you. You who bear the image of God, the God they hate. The father can't even communicate with his son. Look at verse 22. And it has often, this demon, has often cast my son into the fire and into water. Open fire pits are everywhere in the first century. How many times have this happened to this? How many times can you be thrown into fire without being scarred and burned and mutilated? This poor thing is coming in. Who knows what he looked like? He's a picture of destitution. He can't talk. His father can't talk to him. And he's saying, please, help he stood there. He stood there. Can you imagine this father finally getting there and watching these disciples try to arrogantly just step in on their own power and do what they've done way back in Mark 6. We got this. He's just a kid. We've done this a million times and it doesn't work. You can just feel the hope leaking out of his heart going, what is going on? He stood there and watched Jesus' cocky followers make a vain attempt to cast this demon out. One commentator says this This dad describes the drama that he deals with every day. These demons degrade this little boy until he grinds his teeth and foams at the mouth like an animal. They seek to disable and distort the image of God by making the boy mute or stiff and lifeless. Then they tried to destroy the image of God altogether by burning or drowning him. Watching the demons do this to a beloved son is a form of suffering for the father too. And so this is a shared request for mercy. The father does not say, have compassion on him and help him. He says, have compassion on us and help us. To put it succinctly, this father is at the end of his rope. Beloved, this man is desperate for God. Do not sanitize this because we're meant to learn something here. Don't distance yourself from the unclean thing because newsflash, that's us. We're meant to see something in this father's life. Jesus is teaching his disciples here and he's teaching us hear something about the danger of self-reliance. This man is desperate for God. We say that in our mission statement, don't we? We're desperate for God. It's on our website. What might Jesus do to make that a sweet reality in our lives? I'm guessing because I've felt it, he might take our knees out from underneath us so that we say what this man says. Look in verse 24. Immediately the father of the child did what? He cried out. That word that Mark uses means to scream. In some translations, you might see in your footnotes. It says he cried out with tears. So do you see the scene? Can you just can you just use our imaginations a little bit? Log off the internet, put down the phones, let's use our brains, let's enter in with our imagination to to see this burned young boy, demonized, the the followers walk in and do what they're always going to do, we've done this, we got it, we don't need Jesus, he's up there doing his thing, we've got it, nothing happens, mockery, ha ha ha, the dad says, what's happening? He says, Jesus, please, he's crying, he's saying, help. Beloved, what this dad is doing, he's in the presence of the Son of God. We sanitize our prayers. You know, oh, honos, domine, Father, we thank you. For he's not, he doesn't have time for that. He is absolutely desperate for a touch from Jesus. Just the hem of your garment, please. Help me, help us, help us, please. Only you can do it, Jesus. They obviously can't. This is desperate and undignified. And that is often the essence of God honoring humility. I think this is exactly what King David did when his fatal presumption, his leaning upon his own kingship, leaning upon his own power, leaning upon his own affluence, just... A little folding of the hands, beloved, and you get robbed blind. David just drifted away from the Lord. He didn't run. And where did it lead him? Murder and adultery. And I think this father crying out, saying, help, is exactly what we have in Psalm 51, where David says, have mercy on me, O God, wash me, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. It's that kind of desperation saying, I need you. I'm not going to give sacrifices. That's not it. I need you. I think this is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans chapter, we love Romans chapter eight, verse 15 says, we cry, Abba, Father, but notice verse 17, that if we suffer with him, that we might be glorified with him. Where does that crying of Abba come from? Often in the fires of affliction when you can't pray anything else and your self-reliance is stripped, that's when you have nothing but the spirit in you and you open your mouth and what comes out is, help! That's a mercy. That's a mercy. Charles Spurgeon says, groanings which cannot be uttered are often prayers which cannot be refused. What does it take to make us groan? Second lesson for self-reliant disciples in Christ's school of prayer is this. It's not the amount of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. So get undignified and cry out to Him. The tough crowd, the tired Father, and finally, the tender Savior. I feel it at this point in the text of saying, We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Enough with ourselves. Thank the Lord he's here. So don't get it wrong. Tenderness with King Jesus doesn't mean that he's a weakling. In verse 19, how does Christ respond? He says, he answered them, O oh, faithless generation. That is so interesting. Because right there, the master is going to, to dissect and prescribe the antidote to what, what's the problem? Why, why won't this work? What's going on? He did not say, oh, you powerless generation. He could have easily said that. He did not say it. He says, you faithless generation. The problem is not power, it's faith. He says, you're not trusting in me, you're trusting in you. And that's why you're standing out here looking like a fool. But I'm going to help you because I love you. Loving his own, he loved them to the end. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Do you notice what he's saying? He says, the end of my earthly ministry is coming, guys. I'm going to the cross sooner and sooner as every day passes. You got to get this. It ain't about you. But do you notice the patience and the tenderness and the compassion he has, not only on the little boy, but on his followers, his rebuke to them, is in urging of them toward faith. He's coaching them about the very thing that they're going to have to have when he ascends to the Father. It's almost as if Jesus is coaching them as a rabbi, wouldn't you know? And he's saying, "Come on, guys. Don't get cocky and don't get lazy." Stop trusting yourselves and trust me. Trust my power rather than your own. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't tire your shoes, and you certainly can't cast out demons like this. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. If we hop down to verse 28, I think the disciples finally lay their cards on the table. I think they reveal that their issue is pride here and self-sufficiency that is manifested in prayerlessness. Look at verse 28. When he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? They, they They don't get it. They're still thinking back to Mark 6. They're saying, hey, we do this all the time. What's the problem? Aren't we your chosen ones? Aren't we going to be first in the kingdom? Aren't we going to have a front row seat to when, when Israel is raised to power again and the Romans are kicked out? Like, aren't we your boys? Verse twenty nine. Jesus said to them, "This kind cannot be driven out by anything, but by prayer." And the footnote also adds fasting. He says. That's interesting. We haven't talked about prayer in this entire passage. What is Jesus doing? Jesus knows exactly what the root issue is. He says, I love you guys. I'm going to die. I'm going to shed my blood for you. But you've gotten caught up in this ministry that you only have because of me. And like so many of my disciples, those mountaintop moments have led you to lethargy and laziness and indifference and presumption. And you stop praying somewhere along the way. Remember when you wake up and you catch me already praying? Guess where you should be? He's helping them. Prayerlessness is at the heart of this whole scenario. It's at this point, beloved, that we should identify with the disciples since most of us know how addictive and how subtle self-sufficiency can be. What cure do we need? Well, Danny Aiken says this, it's brilliant. Whenever the disciples are separated from Jesus, they get in trouble, and they experience a crisis. What a valuable lesson. We never advance beyond our need for Jesus. The key is not the depth of our faith, but the direction of our faith. What is important is not the potency of our faith, but the person of our faith. A little faith in a great Savior gets amazing results. Back to verse 27. What does this tender and compassionate Savior do for this young man? Go to verse 25. When Jesus saw that crowd came running together, and I don't know, but I think maybe he wants to spare this father and this little boy from any more embarrassment or degradation. So crowd is running. Let's see the show. Jesus is going to step in. So what does the tender and compassionate Savior do? Make an example out of him and say, gather round, gather round now. He's not a snake oil salesman. He's not a charlatan. He has nothing to prove. What does he do for this young man? Verse 25, he saw a great crowd was running together, so he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you. Is that so different than the charlatans who have to come up with some magic concoction and call upon the gods to do their magic spells, right? Jesus is so unlike charlatans, both then and now. What does He say? I command you. There's no ritual, there's no sacrifices, there's no magic potion. I have the authority, because I am king of the angels. Get out. Jesus says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, the demon's going to try to get one last hit. It came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of the people said, He's dead. But Jesus, verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand who makes the first move to those that are dead Jesus reaches down and takes him by his little hand and he lifts him up and he arose you know what what it literally says there Jesus raised him and he was resurrected In Mark 9, 9 and 10, Jesus told his disciples that the Son of Man would rise from the dead. And they said, we have no idea what you're talking about. So here we are in Mark 9. He says, okay, I'll show you. Here in the drama with the demonized boy, they get a vivid display of both the Lion of Judah who conquers death, both spiritual and physical, and the Lamb of God who shows gentle compassion and patience to his weak and wounded people. In light of Jesus' words in verse 29, what does he say? This kind cannot be driven out By anything, not your personality, not your affiliations, not your raising of your voice, not your religious fervor, not any incantation, nothing in you. This doesn't come out by anything but prayer. So what's the third lesson from Christ's school of prayer? We are most potent in the Lord's service when we pray with a desperate hunger for his presence and not just his power. You notice the whole problem. He says, Why didn't you wait for me? Why did you presume? You just need me to be with you. Well, how do we dwell with Jesus? How do we dwell in his presence? The Word of God and prayer. We love Bible studies. We love books. We love to buy books. Going to a conference tomorrow, I can't wait to buy books. Books are easy because you get accolades for how much you read. But no one sees you in private prayer, and that's where Christ wants to take you to teach you something. There's no attaboys when you're face down in the basement at 3 a.m. saying, help! Save my children, help the church! Help me in my unbelief. I feel like I'm two inches from apostasy. I've never been here before. I've become lazy. I've become self-reliant. I've become too inward. It's too much of me. I'm sick of me. I need you. I need you. No one's going to walk up and pat you on the back. But guess what you get? Jesus. We can learn valuable lessons from each of the players in this passage. Like the demonized boy, we are all oppressed by the God of this world and dead in our sin until Jesus takes us by the hand and resurrects us with a powerful touch from his nail-scarred hands. Like the self-reliant disciples, we need Christ to firmly yet lovingly teach us about the danger of pride. Like the boy's father, we need to learn that crying out in desperation, even in an undignified way, to God is itself an act of faith. Like the crowd, we should run to Jesus, not away from Him. And though often tough, beloved, the lessons we learn in Christ's school of prayer are for our eternal joy and our present health. He doesn't come to break a bruised reed. He doesn't come to mock his people. He's shepherding and coaching and helping. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. Even when you write in your diary, why? That same Spurgeon that I quoted earlier said, when we cannot trace his hand, we can trust his heart. So I ask you, what's in your diary? Although painful, do you realize that some of your most fruitful times in prayer and intimate fellowship with Christ have come during seasons of gray clouds and rain? Do you, like me, feel the tension between fearing the vulnerability that comes with being weak? I don't like it but I also love the closeness of the Savior as he carries you through those times. If you're longing to be desperate for God, maybe for the first time, maybe the Lord today is showing you that you've tried a lot of things on your own, both religious and non-religious and everything in between. And you're at the end of your rope because you know what your conscience tells you every night that makes your heart skip a beat, is that you are guilty. And there is only one way to be made right, and that is through Jesus Christ. He calls you today through his word. Come. If you're desperate for God today, come. If you, my brother and my sister, are desperate for God for the millionth time, You've walked with the Lord for 5, 10, 50, 70, 80 years, some of you, and you've had many mountaintop moments. But you realize that self-reliance, apathy, laziness, a little folding of the hands has led you back into the valley of humiliation. And in his mercy, he's awakening you once again and saying, pray, pray for my presence, not just my power. If that describes you, would you be undignified and humble enough to come up and pray with me after the service? And I will ask you to pray for me. Because newsflash, I've got a lot of alleys and I've got a lot of mountaintops, but I'm not satisfied. Will you join me and pray, Lord I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, we thank you for